Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much to our friends out of the UK for sponsoring tonight. Thank you all for being here at this wonderful BAFTA A Life in Pictures. Um, a gentleman who, one of the most versatile and committed actors in the business, but not just an actor, a producer, a singer, a dancer, a multi-instrumentalist, a showman. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, Hugh Jackman. <laughs> I want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, thank you, thank you. Oh, thank you. They your love what you. Your mom. You're going to see your mum's here. I was going to say your mum and daddy. They are. Your mum's here. My mum's and dad. <laughs> um, we love what you do, but you love what you do, and that just yeah. oozes out of the screen. Ah, uh, well. Thank you, uh, because I do love it. It's very self-indulgent, my job. <laughs> I literally feel like I've never worked a day in my life. I, I, I have the luckiest. Uh, there's been a few Wednesday matinees that have been tough, but <laughs> I, I honestly pinch myself every single day. I got my first job when I was 26, so I, uh, it was kind of late, I suppose, for an actor. And just it's been a journey that has been full of surprises the whole way, right up to tonight. Because you've trained as... Can I, by the way, yeah. is this rude to say, can we rename it Half-Life in Pictures? I was just, you know, like... <laughs> life so far? What's that? Life so far. Life so far, I'll do... I'll, we can do that. Life Thanks, so Eda. far. Appreciate life till now. Thank you. Life so far in Pictures. I think you're right. <laughs> um, because it, you, you trained in journalism. Is that right? Yeah, I did a degree in communications, which yeah. is basically an arts degree, majoring in journalism. Yeah. I thought romantically I would be a radio journalist, travelling the world with, I mean... I'm talking back in the days with reel-to-reel. -reel. <laughs> uh, we had to start learning shorthand. It was those days of journalism. Um, and when I graduated, I, in the last semester of this three-year degree, I did a minor elective in drama. Uh, because someone had told me it's, it, there's no requirements, you turn up, there's nothing. And for the first time in the course's history, the guy who did this class of drama decided to do a play. And he was a Trotskyist. Everything was just, it was full on everything, equal opportunity. He literally put down the class list and then the cast. And he drew a line and I ended up getting the lead. And I begged him. I said, please don't give me the lead. I, I'm graduating. I have a thesis to do. He says, no, I can't. You're, you're the lead. And we went on tour with that play. And I realised I'd made a big mistake, that I probably have wasted three years of my life, that I was... Really, what I loved to do was to act. So, yeah, I was, that was, I was 22 or 23, and then I decided to go and do drama school. And, and I, what I find interesting, I was listening to a lot of the interview you did where your drama school had kind of two sort of sets to it, where there was the kind of musical theatre group and right. then the more kind of traditional yeah. kind of drama. And you were in that group. You yeah. weren't in the musical theatre no. group. No. But then you got this role in, music, in a musical. Yeah. So all your mates in the musical were going, hold on a minute. They were really upset with me. <laughs> Dude, that's our, this is Australia, there's not a lot of work. He's like, come on, can you just stick to the theatre? Like, there's like four musicals a year, leave it to us, you know. But one of the first jobs I got was Beauty and the Beast. And I, I remember my agent at the time putting me up for it. You know, I'm out of drama school, you say yes to everything. But I was like, I really thought she might have been smoking something at the time. Because... <laughs> and I went in, I auditioned, and uh, luckily for me, I got to read first. And uh, I could tell, you know, there's probably some actors, I could tell things had gone well with the read. Uh, and then I said, oh, great, now you'd like to sing your song? I said, sure. And so I sang Stars from Les Mis, and I cracked on the last note so badly, like a, like a <laughs> massive bonk. And I saw all that hope in the panel literally deflate. <laughs> and the MD said to me, why did you sing that song? And I said, well, honestly, it was the only thing I had music for from drama school, which was the truth. He says, well, you can throw that away because you'll never be in that show. In your face. <laughs> so, Greg, I wouldn't name him. I don't want to name him, but no. Um, but actually, I then went on to get the part, and, but in my contract, and I don't think there's ever been a professional actor who's had it in his contract that I had to have one singing lesson every week <laughs> that they paid for. So, and it was kind of great, because I was an actor, I was in a musical, it was a huge departure for me, a huge surprise, and mm. I was singing eight shows a week around amazing singers with a lesson every week, and that's really when I learned to sing. Wow. On the job. 
And, and theatre was, was, was the thing for you, really. You never really aspired or thought there was Hollywood would call, really, did you? You thought it was kind of, that was where you... Yeah, there was, it was the holy grail for me. Honestly, yeah. to... So to go back a little further, I did have... <laughs> and actually, this is one of the stories I can only tell in this country. I had a, uh, a job offer for Neighbours. <laughs> and... Who wasn't? Huh? Who hasn't? Who wasn't? <laughs> no, true. And I, I was shocked. So I was doing part-time classes. I got this job offer and I would auditioned for this prestigious school, yeah. uh, WAPO, West Australian Academy of Performing Arts, and I got the offer for the, for the drama school the same day I got the offer for Neighbours. And uh, I ended up taking uh, the drama school and uh, mainly because in my heart of hearts, in my dreams, my goal yeah. would be one day to be the National Theatre, to one day be the Royal Shakespeare Company. For me, watching the John Barton tapes, watching all those great actors, I thought that's the best place in the world to act. And there is a photo of me outside the Cottesloe Theatre, now I think the Dorfman Theatre, at the National, literally like this. I'm t about 20 years old. Mum had taken me, Mum was here. I'd seen, I was seeing Angels in America, standing room seats. Oh, wow. And I took a photo outside, which I stuck up on my wall for three years during drama school. So for me, all my hopes, all my dreams were realised when I was at the National Theatre. I was 28, walking across Waterloo Bridge every night, thinking, oh, what, what's next? You know? So that's really what I thought. Everything else has been a surprise to me. How much do you think theatre has shaped, <clears throat> excuse me, you as an actor in terms of the versatility and the commitment that you have as an actor? Uh, I'm so glad that I did it that way. And it's not without its challenges. It, film is a different. It was a little uncomfortable when I first began on film. It felt very stop-start, technical. I found it hard to get a rhythm. Uh, the kind of comfort at home feeling I felt on the stage, I wasn't feeling early on in film. However, Given all that, I would much prefer to start as an actor on stage, to learn that craft, to understand the sense of ensemble, the teamwork, not only with the actors but with the crew, that unconscious listening to an audience. And I, I still take it onto a soundstage. I still feel that, even, that the camera is that audience. So I'm doing a scene with you, Edith, but like you are on stage, you're constantly feeling and understanding what that... And that I got from the stage. Uh, to this day, when I go to the theatre or if I'm in a show, I stand in the wings beforehand because nothing makes me more excited than <laughs> that feeling that I'm about to see a show or be on stage. And probably a lot of my favourite moments as an actor have been on stage. How do you feel about watching yourself? <clears throat> well, that's what's good about stage. <laughs> you can't. <laughs> um, I'm better now. Mm -hmm. I'm a lot better now. Uh, I, and listening, I think listening to yourself is even harder. Mm -hmm. I think everyone finds that when you first hear yourself. You're like, I don't sound like that. <laughs> um, recording and singing, that has been difficult. But I've had to force myself. To, I mean, I know actors who have never, I'm talking Academy Award winning actors who have never seen themselves. Who, and I said, really, never? And they said, no, I'm afraid if I see myself, I will never walk onto a soundstage again. You know? <laughs> um, and it's uncomfortable and it's difficult. And uh, I think often what is important about the creative process is being critical, yeah. pushing yourself. It can make it very uncomfortable watching. You, you tend to only see. And actually, I'm not sure if I've told mum this, but when I was becoming an actor, uh, I haven't told many people. Edith, you do this to me. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. My, <laughs> I told my dad I wanted to go to drama school. Mm. And uh, he said, I think that's a very good idea, although I mm. think you're very thin-skinned. And I remember, and I, at the time, I was like, what do you mean thin-skinned? <laughs> um, but he's right. I'm a sensitive soul. So that watching, having not, you can't change it. It's there, it's yeah. done, is a difficult process. We're going to start off with... Uh, with a film from 2006. And bizarrely, we were talking about this film just the other night with the director of it, Mr. Christopher Nolan. Oh, boy, lucky you. The prestige. The thing about Christopher <laughs> Nolan is he does it all so easily. So, I mean, it, everything feels real, documentary-like. Even the, when it came down to the look of Root, we had... You may have noticed I have no earlobes. Uh, Mum, do you have earlobes? I'm not sure. <laughs> That's anyway. I have no earlobes, so we put on fake earlobes, a little bit on the bridge in the nose, and some fake teeth, uh, just to make him slightly different. I've actually had arguments with people who really did not believe that was me. They thought it was someone else. Um, anyway, so wow. we just made little slight changes to it, and 
that's where Chris Nolan was amazing. He, he really just let me play. He was an out-of-work actor. I had a, another life for him, and, and Chris was like, yeah, fine, explore what you want. He's, he's in my experience, Baz Luhrmann or Chris Nolan, uh, Jason Reitman, uh, Darren Aronofsky, uh, Jim Mangold, probably even more than anyone, th these directors have such discipline about their storytelling, and yet, th so they allow you to be free as an actor, mm. because they know exactly what the scene's about, they know what story they're telling, and they're not frightened if you go off to the right or left, and if you go too far, they can easily bring you back. That's, so working with Chris was one of my favourite experiences. You, you mean you rattled off an amazing list of directors there? I tried to drop as many as I could. <laughs> it's just... just in case. It's incredible. <laughs> and I guess that each experience, you learn so much as well. You still learn, even after so many years in the business, you're still learning. Do you feel like that? You're, 100%. You're so willing to learn as well. Oh, I need to learn. I, I, I really feel that. Um, I, don't, I don't know why I think, in the end, I had teachers when I began. My, my acting teacher told me on day one, and all of us, you're not here to learn how to act. You're here to learn how to learn that actually your ability to learn about yourself, to constantly evolve, to learn about humanity, to learn about society, to learn about how to do things differently, that is what's held me instead. And I think that and maybe the ability to say yes or the courage to give things a go has really helped me. And, and these directors, it was Nicole Kidman who told me that. I, I've been friends with her for a long time, so I'm dropping them all over the place here. So <laughs> I'll have, that uh, one. I'll have but, a little bag here, we'll keep them <laughs> <on>. <laughs> But she did, she told me, she said, always director, 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 always, and push yourself, go for directors, watch movies that you think, wow, even if it's ones you find difficult to watch, if there's something challenging in it, work with them, you know, and they will, a great director will make you a better actor. Trevor Nunn on stage made me a better actor forever, not just in that show. Mm. Uh, a Jim Mangold made me... He directed me in the seventh Wolverine, I think, that I'd done. And I think it was the best one that I'd done because he pushed me. And so I certainly have that in my the blood. I certainly have a belief about myself that there is a lot of room for improvement. Um, and so I, I hope I'm learning. I really do. Did Nicole give you that um, advice before or after Australia? <laughs> uh, before. It's a kid's dream, isn't it? I'm going to be a cowboy, a slow-mo on horseback in a Western. Um, yeah, and we <laughs> rode every day for a year, and I'll admit that I was... A bit sore. Uh, <laughs> sore <laughs> and scared for about the first three months. I mean, I didn't tell anyone at the time, of course, <laughs> but riding horses, I, I came to Adelaide, is nerve-wracking, and we did some crazy stuff. In fact... The closest I've come to thinking my time was up was that very scene. Uh, as we rode in, if you remember the slow-mo of probably 150 horses, so there were four or five guys 500 metres up the way. So they got everyone, we're all in there, we're going, and I'm in the middle of this pack of horses. There has never been anything more exhilarating or frightening because there was absolutely nothing I could do to control my horse. When your horse is in the middle of 150 Brumbies, in the middle of the outback with no saddles on them, it, you're just on the back of a wild horse. So we came around, all the horses were meant to go left. They all went right. So <laughs> we'd done the shot, we passed the shot, and now it was about basically just getting, <laughs> stopping the horses because I thought this horse could go all the way to Alice Springs, you know. <laughs> And they all went right, and it was there was so much dust. And my horse and a few of them had broken off to the left, and they got scared. And then I'm talking 20 horses. When they realised all the others had come back, as the dust cleared, I just saw 20 horses come at me. And my horse immediately just reared up. And I literally hung on to the neck of this horse, because if I had come off that horse or that I, I would have just got trampled. So I, oh my I gosh. there is actually a sound, because my mic was on <laughs> the whole time. I would love to have said that it was very manly. <laughs> it was not. And thankfully has not yet <laughs> seen the light of day. Haven't <laughs> checked out uh, the DVD extras yet. If you look at this scene, what amazes mm. me, how Baz, in the middle of the outback, we were in some of the most beautiful land, mm. living out there, and I will never forget it. I was also, I had my son with me at the time, who was seven, and probably 
the happiest, in a way, mm. moments of his childhood. We, he would go to school with the Aboriginal kids and I would go off and work and then he would come and meet us and we would just be out there in the outback, just the two of us lighting, you know, just listening to the, the, the wind and just mm. sleeping out under the stars sometimes. It was heaven. But so much of that scene, which is a long scene, is shot at sunset which is only about a one-hour window of the day. So literally every day, Baz was like, get on the horse, let's go. Like, so at the end of the day, I mean, wow. he was a lover. The aesthetic that Baz held on to for such long scenes was amazing, how he pulled that off. It was a, a nine-month shoot? It was a long shoot. It was a nine-month shoot. shoot. And I, honestly, at the end of that nine months, if he said we have to start again, I would have done it happily. It was some of the most beautiful parts of the world, an incredible cast, Baz Luhrmann to work just work with Baz Luhrmann, okay? If you get a chance, <laughs> don't turn him down. That's what I'm saying. It's, he, for actors, uh, for creators, he's one of the most sensitive, incredibly accommodating directors I've ever worked with. He loves actors and he loves to create an atmosphere. And that's never been replicated on any set I've been on. And you and Nicole. Yeah. I know previously we'd had you as husband and wife and happy feet. But, um, <laughs> I forgot that. Yeah, right. That's right. <laughs> um, but the the chemistry and you two acting against and with and around each other was just fantastic. And I wanted to ask you about that thing of working with people that you know. Yeah. And acting opposite people that you know. And if it is, yeah. Is it harder or is it easier than coming in with someone that you don't know particularly well? Uh, I believe in talking with actors up front. Mm -hmm. So. Nicole and I were down in Kangaroo Valley, which is as romantic as it sounds and is beautiful, and we were learning to ride. Uh, my family, and by the way, Nicole lived with my wife, Deb, when she first came to Hollywood, so they're, they're best of friends. Uh, needless to say, Deb wasn't on set when we had our kissing scenes, so that would have been <laughs> awkward. Um, but we talked about it. I said, let's talk about it, and we just sort of, we both loved the project and created a, an atmosphere which was safe. They're very... Probably better story, one of the, the, literally the first job I did was a guest star in a show called Halifax FP, and it was an Australian drama, and Rebecca Gibney was a star of it, and I had a sex scene with it, probably, probably the most graphic sex scene I've ever had to this day. And Rebecca and my wife were very good friends, and Deb had previously been a guest star and had a lesbian sex scene with her on the show. <laughs> wow. And the, yeah, get your head around this one. So, and the director of that particular episode had directed Deb in one of her big movies called Shame. So we got to the sex scene, cameras are rolling, and did one take. And I remember Steve, the director, goes, "Cut! All right, let's go. All go home." And I was like, "We're done." And he goes, "Yeah, your wife called me." <laughs> <laughs> Which both Rebecca and I were thrilled with. That was very uncomfortable because we literally had a dinner party the next night. Hi, Rebecca. How are you? Like, <laughs> did um, was there was various endings shot for Australia? Is that right? There was a couple of different endings. Yeah, shot there were. D various versions, uh, I think probably, it's interesting, I, I had forgotten that, but we, I think Baz was always very certain, certainly about which characters would die, if characters would die, yeah. would they come back or not. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't mind that. I think, I think most novelists would say, if not on paper in their head, they've got two or three endings. Yeah. And I think in the end, sometimes you don't know what is right. And if, I think from memory, the studio said, can we just shoot both options? We yeah. did it on Prisoners as well. There's a number of films we've done where I've had to, and then often it's the audience will tell you. You'll put up a screening mm. and with one ending, a screening with the other ending, and it becomes super clear. Yeah. But sometimes you don't know until you're there. I quite like the idea of you going to the premiere not knowing if you're yeah, what right. end and you're going to yeah. go watch, going, which one's it going to be? What's going to yeah, happen right. to me? Yep. Oh, <laughs> yeah. um, next up, we're going to talk about um, oh, an, an incredible film on so many levels, Le Miserable. Oh, which, thank you. Um, uh, oh, I mean, I, there's so much to ask you about this, and I was really lucky that I got to talk to you and the rest of the cast and, and Tom quite a lot when the film came out. Um, it's phenomenal to, talk, to think about how that film came together and what you guys were put through and what you had to achieve. And it felt like it was almost everything that you're about. It was mm. everything that you love to do. So mm. there was theater, 
there was being on a sound stage, there was singing, there was, you know, everything. Would you, would you agree? 100%. And I, I don't know how all the actors felt, but I certainly was thrilled to hear that we were going to sing live, particularly mm. for Les Mis, because there's really no dialogue. Everything is in song. So you really, I think it was really important for uh, the actors, for all of us, to feel we could start the songs whichever way we wanted, however the mood took us. And uh, I remember auditioning for that. I, I actually demanded an audition. Uh, I'm not sure why I put myself through that. Yeah, but why? I, um, it's proof to yourself? I, I think some people in the Cameron Macintosh at the time thought that I would play another part, maybe I'm better for another part. I really wanted to play Jean Valjean. Mm. I, I, I loved it and I just wanted to myself make sure that I felt that I could do it. I think it's one of those iconic parts. Obviously in literature it's, it's one of the greats. In musical theatre it is one of the most incredible parts played by some extraordinary people and I wanted to probably prove to myself and I didn't want to have any doubts uh, because I firmly believe as an actor you must walk into an audition or you must walk onto stage without those doubts. Whatever doubts you have, you've got to somehow get through them. Uh, so I had an audition. I didn't realise it would be a three-hour audition. Wow. Um, I sang all the songs for probably 20 minutes. All of them? And then <laughs> all of mine. <laughs> there was probably 20, 25 minutes. And then Tom Hooper, I was the first person to audition, kept me there and he would come up and sit while I was singing, <laughs> like, like this, you know. <laughs> and, and he was playing with the, with the piano player there, going through songs, and he was like, can we change, just make it less, 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 less? Because he was playing the piano music from the stage show, but he was like, no, no, no I've got to... He, I could tell he was working out how he was going to shoot it. And I remember after three hours saying, Tom, it was about 8.30 at night, I'm like... <laughs> Tom, I've really got to go because the kids have got to put the kids to bed. And I never get the look in his face. It was really like, hmm, obviously not dedicated. Like, I'm like, <laughs> I've literally been singing for three and a half hours. It was a good little tip for how Tom would be on set. <laughs> Want it, but not that bad. Um, we're going to but take... it, was, it was a wonderful experience. Those singing lessons really paid off. <laughs> <laughs> they really, uh, wow. I mean. You d you've just reminded me, actually, one of the best performances I've ever seen on stage was Judy Dench singing Send in the Clowns. Oh. And I remember being backstage with her. Oh, I hope she doesn't mind me saying this. Yeah. Huh? From Chess. Is it Chess, Send in the uh, Clowns? Send in the Clowns, no. Something. no. What is... There you go, yeah. One person. <laughs> it's Sondheim, but which Sondheim. one? Sondheim, is it? No, Little Night There you go, thank you. And um, she was very nervous and uh, kind of, why am I there? I'm a, there was, it was a royal uh, gala performance. And that's the performance that literally killed everyone. And uh, I, I think in the end, when I worked with Trevor Nunn on Oklahoma, he wouldn't let us sing for three weeks. You had to internalise the lyrics. And so that's how I learnt song uh, or how to sing, is to make uh, really understand the thoughts and the emotion of the character. And I always thought that was the pivotal moment in a way for that character, but Tom Hooper, I remember him saying to me, he said, you cut from there to 25 years later, and this guy who had been almost an animal, been turned into an animal, is the mayor of the town. And so, I just need you hearing that song to go to a place so deep, to touch something so powerful that we can believe that's possible. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I do remember having a few sleepless nights the next few weeks, but in the end, that I think, what an opportunity to play a character who, because of circumstance, because of life, was filled with so much self-hatred and so much anger uh, that he finds it almost impossible to take on this spirit. Some spirit has come to him, some kind of grace has mm. come to him, a uh, sense of forgiveness, it's almost impossible for him. And that is such an uh, incredible opportunity to play something like that. And, and that scene and how it worked with Tom, you guys had little earpieces in where yep. the music was... But it's, it, it, there's so much space you're, you're given. It feels like yeah. you're, you're given so much space to, to just really take your time and, and play with those yeah. characters and it not being about the rhythm of the song or the music as yeah. such. It being more about the rhythm of the character and the storytelling through that character. Right. And then being able to do it live. I mean, in that song... 
the lyric, what, what have I done? Sweet Jesus, what have I done? You know, you can do it any number of words. If you're thinking, what have I done? Sweet Jesus, what have I done? Become a thief in the night, become a dog on the run. Have I fallen so far? And is he? It, it somehow, fear, he just said, don't worry about that. Mm. He had a, it was a guy off set, not very far off set, in a perspex box so that you couldn't hear the, the sustain pedal or the pounding of the keys watching a monitor that you saw. So he's watching that and watching my breathing. So I would just get a chord to give me the note. And then I could be, what have I done? Oh, sweet Jesus, what have I done? I could go whichever way I wanted. I could whisper, I could sing, I could stop singing. And that freedom was everything. And he never cut a take. From beginning to end, he went right through, ever. He never said, I just need this one line, can you pick that line up? Always was the whole thing. And that, I think, it really helped. And probably for me as an actor, mm. it was, particularly a stage actor, that was just a gift. Did you spend much time watching other scenes when people were, 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 were oh, yeah. you able to? Yeah. Because I'm out, I mean. Really, it was a really ex extraordinary experience yeah. because you wake up in the morning <laughs> and I remember looking at my pillow and almost saying to myself, when I put my head back down on that pillow, I may never sing that song again. And it's this feeling of, this is the championship final. Like, this is the <laughs> Super Bowl. Like, I've got to do it today. There's no going back. I mean, immediately, not just one take. And so we all felt that for each other. I was greedier and luckier than others. I had three or four of those days. But someone like Eddie Redmayne had one day for Empty Chairs and Empty Tables. He had another duet, but that song, and it's one guy upstairs on his own. So it kept getting moved in the schedule, the poor guy. It kept getting just bumped. <laughs> oh, listen, we've got this, or someone's sick, or the, the weather, we're going outside, we'll do it next week. And finally, he said, I can't sleep anymore. It's like, <laughs> I've got my A-levels tomorrow, and you say, no, do it next week, do it next week. And he literally, I remember him saying, it's like doing your A-levels, and you don't know when the date is. <laughs> And so when it got to his song, after take seven, and if you ever watch that back, it's the most extraordinary performance. Uh, if you ever see that back, take seven, Tom Hooper, who's not known to say, we're done, let's move on. Mm. He says, I've got it. It's, it's brilliant, Eddie, move on. And he goes, no, <laughs> <laughs> I have waited three and a half months to sing this song. I will have another take. Tom goes, all right, man, have another <laughs> And in the film, it's take 22. No. And Tom Hooper said, I was just doing it for Eddie. But when take 22 came, he went, ah. And he said, I'll always trust an actor when he says I want another take. Wow. Mm. Can we talk a little bit about Annie as well? Anne Hathaway. Yeah. And, oh. uh, and uh, I, didn't del I deliberately didn't go on set that day because... I Dreamed a Dream is, it's really the number one song. And I think it's such, this character goes to such a dark place, such a vulnerable place, where you see such complexity of emotion, of pain, of hurt, of lost dreams, of anger, of hopelessness, so many things. And I thought, she doesn't want 25 people behind the monitor. <laughs> <laughs> you know? There's a time for that. <laughs> I was on set, but I was in my trailer, and I remember going to her at lunch, and I could just see exhaustion. Mm. And she'd lost so much weight. Uh, she was exhausted emotionally, exhausted physically. And thank, thank you, Anne, because that four minutes on screen singing that song, one take, is absolutely astonishing. One take. Yeah. One take. Unbelievable. Mm. But you talk about the physicalities that you're all, that, that, you know, she was emotionally and physically mm. exhausted and stuff, but the physicalities that you had to go through for that character as well, and you see it in particularly in, in, you know, even just in the face in, in, in that scene that we watched and stuff. Yeah. It's, it was a huge part of, of why it worked so well and what you put yourselves through to prepare for that. The one thing we had, the, the stage show, I absolutely love the stage show. If you watch the stage show, in the first 10 minutes, Jean Valjean goes through all of what you see in the film, but it's all in revolves and 
literally whip off the fake, the old beard, put on the new one, stuff the thing in or put on weight. Like it's, it's impossible to show what you can show on film. So we were really determined, Tom and I, to, as was Anne, to show the physical change. So I lost, I think, about 30 pounds uh, and then put 30 pounds on during the film, which was great fun, by the way. <laughs> no hardship in that. Uh, but the first 30 pounds were really, really difficult. And I remember shooting that first scene uh, with the ropes, and that was shot in the ocean in Portsmouth, in one of those docks, uh, which they filled with the ocean water in February. And I've never oh. been colder. And I literally was 30 pounds lighter. I had not an ounce of body fat on me, and I was... And we did, I also was doing dehydration before that first shot because it's a trick I learned on Wolverine, but please don't try this at home. You can, <laughs> you can lose 10 pounds of, of body fat in 36 hours if you just basically dehydrate yourself. It's terrible for your body, wow. not worth it. And it gives you a shocking headache and cramps. And that was one of the, but I, that first time I'm on screen, it gives you a horrible, haunted look and the eyes are sunken. And so, you know, it was a great opportunity for us to show that, mm. that you can't do on stage. What's your... When you think about The Miz, what's the thing that pops in your head about that experience? Um, I think the word courage comes to mind. I do remember a great camaraderie of the actors, knowing we were doing... kind of putting ourselves on the line and uh, everybody... Everybody was there for everybody. Everyone knew what was happening. We were trying to do something really different. And uh, it is a... I almost... I thought about pulling out at one point. Really? About three weeks before. It felt so... I was probably losing weight and very grumpy at the time, but I just... It felt so huge. Huge mm -hmm. story, huge characters, huge archetypes, massive literary figures and... Uh, I had doubt as to whether I could pull it off. And it was my wife who actually talked me off that cliff. She, God, Dad. She was, yeah, love <laughs> She just, she said, you should have doubt because Jean Valjean would have doubt because you need humility to play him. So now get over it because you're perfect for it and go in. And literally it was a one G up talk and I thought, okay, get over it. And, and I think for me there's moments as an actor, where you really want... And by the way, one of the first jobs I remember going, I want this and I'm going to go for it. And to protect myself before that, I think I'd had an attitude of, oh, I'll go for it. If I get it, I get it. If I don't, eh. <laughs> but really, that's not the truth. I always wanted the job. And in this one, I said, I want it. And I went for it and I got it. And just before doing it, I was like, well, what was I thinking? You know, because it, it felt big to me. They're big, big emotions. They're big mm. stakes, and they're it's an important story. And so, yeah. Um, I'm glad she talked you around. <laughs> but I love your commitment to your commitment to to truth. I think is what I'm trying to say because you know that being truthful about that, but also in terms of when you get offered things that you know you're not right for, or like Chicago, you turned that role down because you were like, I'm too young. Yeah. And, and I love your commitment to the truth of that, you know, in terms of, no, it's not right for me and for that, in terms of saying no to things as well as saying yes to things. When I watched Chicago, my palms were sweating, <laughs> just by the way. And I was like, why didn't I just put on makeup? That was <laughs> but Richard, you were so good, and I still think I was right. I think it's taken me a while. Really, in life, you have your gut instinct. Mm -hmm. and, and, and by the way, I haven't always done it. Sometimes I've been talked into things, uh, and I generally regret them. Uh, no, ultimately, those times where you're talked into doing something for a reason, or this might be good for your career, or this or that, even if you make a mistake, even if you get something wrong, when you go from your gut um, and you choose to do something that is right for you, um, then even if it doesn't work, it's okay. You can live with that. And I suppose, and I think, I've always thought acting, screen acting, stage acting, is one of the, it is about truth. It is about uncovering the layers. Uh, I do firmly believe in life, we wanna be seen and we wanna see each other, not the masks. We, and we put a lot of effort into the masks, mm -hmm. but deep down, we really wanna just be ourselves. Warts and all, even the bits we don't like. And acting 
is really about that. And I think I, I get a little emotional watching that because that scene, because it weirdly reminds me of having to open up and risking showing things of myself I don't like. It's not always comfortable. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been thinking, I've been giving that answer. I, I'm lucky, I have people around me, not just Debs, but I have people around me who have always encouraged that. And one of them is here, and that's my agent of 20 years, London agent Lou Colson. So I hope you don't mind me pointing her out, but she's always, Lou is here with the family and uh, Tom and Megan, and, and I met them when I was doing Oklahoma in 1998. Mm. And have always encouraged me to keep learning, take risks, do the thing that feels right to me. Mm. It's so important to have those people around you mm. who kind of can be truthful and honest with you about the good things and the bad things. Totally. Yeah. And even if I say I really love this, and not, that Lou will say, yeah, I don't, but uh, <laughs> good luck. And, uh, and sometimes... Uh, but always there for you, you know, mm. and I think that it is really, really important. And I've been very lucky uh, when I found Lou here and she was fighting for me from the beginning. It's interesting because it was strange to me because I came as, a, as you were saying earlier, as an actor and I somehow got into musicals. And weirdly, when I was first here and the same in Australia, we're struggling to get any audition in film uh, because I was known as a musical theatre guy. And I wanted to say, I'm not a musical theatre guy. And it's really hard to do the musical theatre stuff, you know. But uh, I'm thrilled that Lou is here tonight and she's been there from the beginning. Should we give Lou a round of applause? I said. Clear. <laughs> um, I love... That is the difference with America. You wouldn't have had to ask. That would, I, know, I would yeah. have said, now, woo! my friend Lou, woo! Stand up, woo! spotlight. <laughs> Boom. Um, one of my favourites of yours... Out of um, so many is Prisoners. Oh, thanks. I, I mean, it's not an easy film to watch. No, particularly with two young kids. Um, <laughs> yeah, but um, I just think it's incredible, and I Thank think you. the performance that Denis Villeneuve, and I know that he pushed you as well, and I know that it yep. was a, a wonderful relationship with you and Jake on screen as well. Denis Villeneuve talk about the fact that Roger Deakins originally were doing it in one one camera. And you guys had done a rehearsal and mm. been a bit of, you know, he allowed you the space to improv. And he was like, no, no, we're going to need two cameras because I don't want to miss any of this. <laughs> he did. And by the way, the first thing I noticed, there was, uh, it was written in the script, and I presumed it impossible to do, that rain turns to snow. And Roger achieve that. I've never seen that in a film. And if you ever see that scene back in the background, you'll see this mix of rain to snow. It's a beautiful little detail that wow. the incredible Roger Deakins, 12-time Oscar nominee, I believe. And so his instincts, the thing about Roger, if you're not on your game with Roger, if Roger's got the camera in his hand and there's, it's you and me, if you're a little off your game, the camera just drifts off. So you, <laughs> <laughs> for real, you've got to be... He, but he allowed, he created this atmosphere where Jake and I could improv. And actually, it took me by surprise, that scene. I should tell you, we had just wrapped the scene before that take. Mm -hmm. um, everyone was happy, moving on, and we were sitting in the car, and I was just sitting there, because the rain machines were on, so I got back in the car, and everyone was racing for the next thing, and Jake looked at me, and, that's, and he just said, we should do one more. I said, you don't think we got it? And he said, I don't know. I just have a feeling we should do one more. Hmm. I said, why? And he says, I think there's something deeper here. I think it's not just cop and suspect that in these cases they find a connection and it's nothing spoken. And uh, I said, yeah. So I asked and, of course, they said yes and that was the next take. And all that stuff every day, that line every day, she's wondering why I'm not there. That waiting for me, not you. So I, I, that actually came from research I'd done of a real case. And I can tell you the real cases in these situations are so horrible and so heartbreaking because literally people break, their minds break. They just can't cope with not being able to find their kid and help them. So, uh, and literally that just sort of came out and, uh, I just remember when we cut, just looking to Jake. We didn't say to him anything, but I will never forget. That's 
See, that's an instinctive act. And I suspect the director, I think Jake is the director, he's just instinctive. His performance is so phenomenal in that movie. It was, there was l less on the page for his character than anybody else. Mm. His performance is so memorable. All those little things, even like the little, his little the twitches, twitches of the eyes and... The whole thing, just his background, the, mm. the amount he put into it. And uh, I, he taught me something, actually, that I use to this day. Uh, again, Jake, I hope you don't mind me saying. But it was his, I think, first day on film. And he's watching my house. And there's a camera in the back seat and he's in the front. And he's just watching. Um, and then he eventually gets out. And apparently, I wasn't there, apparently the cameraman told me that he sat there for about eight minutes and then he got out of the car. And of course, the shot's probably gonna be three seconds. <laughs> and I said, Matt, I heard you sat in the car for a long time. And he goes, yeah, it's my first shot. I was just feeling actory. <laughs> I, I could feel the thing in the back, it was my first day, I just, and, I thought, I'm just going to sit here until I feel like I'm the character. And I was like, and I use that now to this day. It's like, just be patient mm -hmm. and just wait. And don't expect that you're just going to be able to walk on set every single day and feel it. But when you say dedication to truth, he will risk maybe someone going, have you heard Jake sat in the car for eight minutes? <laughs> he, he will just wait, wait until it's right and then go. And the same thing for that scene. I think, I think there's one more. Wow. And I, to be honest, me, because I was well brought up, I was like, yeah, but everyone's moving, we, you know, it's lunch. And I, I <laughs> that lunch, the caterers, the poor guys, they're like, lunch now. Like, you know, really, it's going to be dried out chicken. <laughs> <laughs> the veggies are going to be overcooked. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, and what about Denis in terms of, of that freedom that he allowed you in terms of that improv and, and giving you space and, you know, and you guys saying to him, we want to go again and, and him giving Always. Up. Denis is... Uh, Denis is a lover of truth in all of his movies, and he's on this incredible run. I mean, if you know Encendie, or if you go through to uh, Sicario, or you know, Arrival, oh, yeah. or Blade Runner, which is a masterpiece, I think. He's an astonishing filmmaker. He loves actors, he loves filmmaking. There's a scene I have with Paul Dano, where we'd been going, and it's, um, uh, I don't want to give the movie away to anyone, but I'm basically torturing him for information. Um, about my daughter, because I strongly suspect he knows where she is. And I was exhausted. I was like that scene in Lame is, I'm out, <laughs> out of ideas. And I could see Denis walking up to me. We're on a soundstage, and he was walking towards me, and he had a slight smile, and I really I thought, oh, this is that lovely moment where you're director's going to say thank you, that was wonderful, and this is just, that was chocolate. amazing, yeah, everything great, let's go and have that lovely chicken that they're prepared, and he came up to me and he goes, uh, he just put his arm around me and on me, he goes, I need you to go further, I don't really feel it, I just don't think you're really there, I need you to go, and I'm like, you need me to go further than that? And he goes, oh, yes, 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 much further. <laughs> and the next, and I think I was a little demoralised, grateful that he asked me to do it and pushed me beyond, my inner critic was like, oh, we're good. <laughs> so <laughs> pushed me beyond that and the next take is the one in the movie. And indeed, actually, it's not just about anger and emotion. It was also about exhaustion. Mm -hmm. um, that's why Denny's one of the greats, you know. His, um, as the way he speaks English as well is like no one else. <laughs> it's just the, the, the cutest thing ever. Um, yeah, before uh, we level, 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 Yeah, level, 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 level. Jake, 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 Logan, before we talk about you, can we just mention young Daphne, who's yeah. just, wow. Daphne is astonishing, and I, I will admit uh, to saying to Jim Mangold, who wrote it, uh, directed it, when he came by, it was originally a father-son story on the road, um, pretty much as it is. He then came up with the idea about six months after the beginning of having Laura, X-23, who's a character in the comic books, and I said, I said, this is a great idea. I understand it, this whole idea of family and everybody, but together, 
But I said, I don't know if we're going to find an 11-year-old girl that you're going to believe is young Wolverine, who, again, spoiler alert, doesn't speak for the first 90 minutes of the movie. Like, this is a great idea, but the reality, Jim, are we setting ourselves up for failure? We then saw Daphne's test. And the test, uh, the test actually, somewhere in the middle, she does the scene. It's in uh, Will, who's a quite famous English actor, her father and Maria. It's in their living room. She's bouncing around. She's doing some physical stuff. She does the scene. And then she's like, can I improvise one? And so, and she completely improvises uh, the, the long scene. And it's astonishing. And she is an extraordinary young actress, an extraordinary young girl. Uh, and she's the heart of the movie. And what she manages to pull off, this blossoming of someone who's been created in a laboratory and watching her open up to life when she first smiles, it is literally one of the most beautiful moments I've ever seen on film. And her ability, just her stillness is astonishing. Congratulations on this film because it's just such a special one and and such an interesting journey for that character as well. 17 years you played Wolverine and, and then for James to come on board and to be the person to to kind of finish his story, in a way. I worked with Jim on Kate and Leopold mm. back in the day, 2000, I think we filmed. Uh, we always wanted to work together again, so I wanted him to do the Wolverine. Um, and that was a script that existed. So the idea of doing this last one, which I knew was going to be my last one, I immediately turned to Jim, because he's an incredible filmmaker, an incredible writer, as well as director. And I will be grateful to him for the rest of my life. Honestly. When I saw the film finished, I must admit, I finally, all my nerves uh, went, all my hopes, which were high, my expectations were super high for the film. I let it all go, and during the credits, we were at the Berlin Film Festival, and Patrick Stewart was there, and Jim, and I was weeping. And I am so grateful to him. The way he captured me and that character, it was finally for me, after 17 years, what I'd felt of the character on screen. And I felt we'd had moments of that, but I'd never felt it so fully as that. And so I'll forever be grateful to him. What was the, what was the idea and what was the kind of journey of that, that story? Because you see, you always knew that that was how it was going to end. And so you see, it started off as a father-son kind of road trip. And then, and yeah. then Daphne kind of, that character kind of came into it. And without her, it kind of almost... Yeah, it, it's it's you know serendipity, whatever it is, that this is how it should have all been. It's ended. amazing to me, Jim. I mean, Jim really shepherded. I really didn't know what that would be. I kept seeing Unforgiven. I kept seeing uh, The Wrestler. Uh, Jim mm. had other movies in his mind. Those were the movies I kept seeing, and felt really strongly that a smaller movie would get us to the heart of this character mm. because. Yes, he's cool and the cigar chomping and slicing and dicing and the the women and all that thing. But to me, this was a character who had lived in violence. What's the consequence of that? What what are he? Why is love the most terrifying thing to him? Why is connection to anybody else the most frightening thing? So Jim puts him in a car. It's kind of like Little Miss Sunshine for a while. You know, we're in this (laughs) car traveling across with this family that he's kind of, I mean... The amount of times he tells this young girl to basically rack off. Like, it's unbelievable what Jim did. And that was, it just all started to make sense. I didn't know how it would end. Mm -hmm. Uh, I had a lot of faith in Jim, and that was probably the smartest thing I ever did. I mean, really, him and Patrick. And I'm going to tell another story, and and excuse me, you have the ability to edit it out. But it's, to me, one of the, I have to tell you a story about Patrick and Daphne, because it's one of my favorite stories about Patrick. It was super hot. We were in the car, that scene you see in the car, later, the next scene. We're driving, it was 120 degrees. I remember Daphne fainting, actually, in the seat. She immediately went red, and then she was asleep during the take. And uh, someone, one of the camera people said, oh, I think Daphne's asleep. I said, no, I think she's fainting. We had to take a break, and she was super hot. We were in that car the whole day. And on our way back, Daphne was now full of beans and feeling great. And uh, she turned to Patrick, who looked a little melancholic, and she said, are you okay? Patrick said, I'm a little sad. She says, why are you sad? And he said, because here's the thing, Daphne. I need you to promise me that you're going to be in the theatre one day. Will you promise me that? And she said, 
all right, I'll do that. You know, she's 11. She's like, sure, I'll be in the theatre. <laughs> she goes, no, seriously, you've got to be in the theatre because you're very rarely going to get scenes like the one we've just done today that are so good that you only do for one day. You may only do it for three hours and then you never do it again as an actor. But in the theatre, six months, every night, you get to do that scene over and over again. <laughs> and I always remember Daphne taking that in. I thought, what a beautiful bit of advice wow. to give an 11-year-old. Wow, that's amazing. Mm. What was it like for you to, to work on, on those scenes with Patrick? Because it for was us so, to watch, it was magical. The first scene we have together is seven and a half minutes long. And, I mean, I don't think we'd have that amount of screen time together in all the movies put together. <laughs> like, just two guys talking about stuff and life and him telling me to F off and doing all this stuff. <laughs> and he was such a different side to that character. It was heartbreaking. And literally, not just me, the entire crew, there were tears rolling down people's faces because he'd lost 22 pounds. He looked very frail in that chair. Mm. His performance was so beautiful. And I just felt this great, it's, it's, I, I'm really glad I had the presence of mind to know that I was working on a great scene with one of the great actors of all time, with someone who's become not just a mentor, but a friend. And I was like, remember this, remember this, mm -hmm. remember this. And Jim brought us in to watch the first cut of that scene and Patrick at the end of it, and I've got a photo of it, thanks to Michelle who's here, took a photo. <laughs> of him, just me hugging him. Wow. And he just hugged me and it was literally like, well, it felt like family, I don't know how to describe it, where we had finally done the scene that we always wanted to do. Wow. Mm. After all that time of, of, was it between matinee that you went to matinee, and <laughs> sure you went for the audition? Yeah, well, I, was, um, I was doing- Oklahoma? Uh, so yeah. I was doing Oklahoma, the Royal National Theatre. I had an audition. They put out this worldwide casting call. And so I got four pages. Of course, they don't send the whole script. I get four pages. And I'm reading them with Deb, my wife. I always go over auditions with her. Yeah. She's like, OK, uh, Wolverine senses danger. His nostrils flare. She's like, <laughs> mm, <laughs> And she's like, snicked. S-N-I-K-T, claws come out of his hands. She's like, Hugh, come on. You can't do this. And I say, oh, you know, it's Patrick Stewart, Ian McKellen. She goes, hey, you're at the Royal National Theatre with Sir Trevor Nunn. You cannot be having claws coming out of your hands. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you know, I'm going to give it a go. And she literally threw it down. She goes, you're on your own. So I, the next day, went for the audition after the matinee. And we came off, it was a three hour show, I whipped off the leather chaps <laughs> and I bolted, literally, I didn't even go back to my change room, I put on a baseball cap and I ran into Soho to do this test because I had to have the test done before six and I ran there and I, came, and I got in and I do the test and the casting agent said to me, um, maybe lose the baseball cap, you know, this is Wolverine, I don't seem as a baseball cap kind of guy, so I take off. Now, I'm playing Curly in Oklahoma, I have a perm in my hair, all right? I take off the baseball cap, she goes, yeah, put it back on. Uh, <laughs> I put it back on and I get a call from my agent the next day saying, uh, you, got a, you got a call back? I'm like, really? And they said, yeah, you got a call back and they thought, the only feedback was maybe you could uh, lose the Southern cowboy accent <laughs> and maybe you could lose the perm, uh, <laughs> which I did. And about seven auditions later, I, uh, I got the job. And it is the only time in 21 years that my wife has ever been wrong. The only time. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> um, we've got some time for some questions from our, oh, our lovely audience, um, if that's all right. Um, we've got a, a gentleman there, if we can get the microphone too. And then I'll microphone to that lady there and we'll come to you next. Hello, what's your question? Hello. Hi. Um, I was just wondering, me uh, and my girlfriend here are both uh, aspiring actors, so we were wondering, um, when you get a script or when you get cast, what's like, how do you go about building the character from scratch? I'm so glad you asked me that. Because uh, <laughs> I, I wished when I was starting, I made so many mistakes, did so many bad commercials, um, and you'll do bad ones and don't give up when you do bad ones, all right? That's part of the course. But um, I really firmly believe the reason I went to study and not do Neighbours was because I felt 
I want to feel when I go into the industry that I've educated myself. I'm not going to stop. I still have an acting coach today. I still learn. I still have a singing teacher. You never stop learning. But that when you go out, that you feel like, no, I deserve to be in the industry. So that's number one. When you get a script, ask for as much as you can. Ask for as much time as you can. Sometimes you won't. Sometimes you'll literally have to do a cold read, and that's fine. Do it. But whatever it takes you to walk in to that audition feeling like you deserve to be there, because as nervous as you are, that director, that casting agent, that producer is way more nervous. And all they want is for someone to come in and for them to go, oh, Great, I don't have to worry about Wolverine. Now let's worry about Cyclops. Like, <laughs> they want, so I used to, the trick I would do to get over my nerves is I would walk in thinking this is the first day of rehearsal. That doesn't mean you're arrogant. You're not gonna walk in first day of rehearsal like, yo, this is my rehearsal. But you walk in like, let's get to work. Let's discover, let's work on this. If they said to me, all right, um, what's your name? Daniel. Daniel. Daniel, we've got a chair for you here, we're set up. I would always say, you know, I think the character would stand. Is that all right if we stand? And they would say, oh, sure. I would always do something so I felt I was part of the creation, like I was rehearsing. I would say, do you want to do it again? And maybe we should do it this way. And I would really try to approach it like I've already got the job and now we're, we're rehearsing it. We're not coming up with a final performance we're digging in deeper. And that seemed to me, and maybe you can try to see if it works, <laughs> takes away the am I, question mark, to the I am. So always feel in I am. You're not going in saying, even though your name's Daniel, you're not going in going, I'm Daniel Day-Lewis, but you're going, I'm Daniel and I'm ready and I've learnt the part and I'm ready for this job. You have to believe it. You believe it, whatever you need to get there. What great Thank advice, you. amazing. Um, lady here, please. Thank you. Hi. Um, hi. Hi, I'm Janine. Hi, Hugh. Hi, Jane. A little bit beside myself. <laughs> <laughs> hi, Hugh's mum as well. That's amazing. Oh, Grace. <laughs> it's Grace. Hi, yeah. Grace. <laughs> um, I, uh, you talked about your perm at, yes. the, um, at the National. I've also been at the National, same hairdresser. Oh, really? I didn't have a perm. <laughs> <laughs> um, Adele, um, she says hi. Oh, um, yeah, I was a, there a while ago. Um, you're big and loud on screen. Amazing. How do I am too? I'm huge, big voice, always get told all the time I'm too loud. How do you get from being a, a stage actor to screen? How did, I know you mentioned a bit of that process earlier, but I find it really hard to channel that largeness to something that you succeed so incredibly with right. on screen? It took me a while. The story I told about Jake <laughs> is a good one to remember. It's a symbolic story. But basically what he was doing was allowing his heartbeat to calm down. And sometimes on stage, a little bit of adrenaline is a good thing. Generally in film, it's not. Allow yourself to calm down. Uh, I've worked with actors who will, while people are saying, all right, quiet on set, action right, they just start ad-libbing, they just start talking, so there's no feeling like, we're starting now, we're acting now, and now we've stopped acting. Now we're acting, now we've stopped. So you can do that. But I think, in the end, big picture, uh, stage, work, stage feels like a party of 100 people, and film feels like a dinner for two. It's the same thing. You've got your actions, you know what you're going for, you're there to affect the other person. And I really try and connect with the other actor. And all the things you've learned on film, still uh, on stage, still apply. The camera is not something to be ignored. The camera is your audience. So even though I'm talking to you, Gene, now, I can feel the camera. And I want to invite that camera in like a best friend. So make yourself comfortable with that camera, literally. That's your best friend and do the scene. And if you feel a little fluttery, a little nervous, say, I feel a little nervous, say to the director, it's fine. I did it on my very last film. A kiss came up out of the blue. I said, I'm sorry, I just feel a little nervous. Uh, can we just do another one straight away? And, and it just went away. Um, he said he hadn't noticed, maybe he was being nice, I don't know. But I think it's important for you to feel calm, relaxed, and that relaxation is everything. Breathe and be, and 
focus on the other actor. I was telling a story earlier today. A director came up to me once and said, uh, by the way, before we start, do you like to do your coverage first or would you like to do it second? And I said, if it's okay, I'd like you never to talk about your coverage again. <laughs> I said, I don't like that feeling because it's our scene. Gene and I are doing a scene. The camera is on me right now and five seconds ago the camera was on you. But at the end of the day, we're doing our scene no matter what. We're connecting, we're listening, checking in, is the other actor there? That's what Jake did to me that day. He was like, there's something else here. We've played the scene, but there's something else. Connect, 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 if that makes sense. Perfect you sense. just did a scene with huge action. <laughs> <laughs> Now, we've got a bit of a treat because Hugh's got a new film coming out on Boxing Day, so Merry Christmas to you all from Hugh. Yes, um, Merry and Christmas. And I've been lucky enough to see it, and it's... Oh, it's wonderful. I just came out crying with joy. Uh, tell you. us a little bit about The Greatest Showman before we... This film is bigger. Teaser. Yeah, this is... <laughs> but you use the camera. It's really interesting because you do play with the camera in this film. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't feel like there's a line between... It's great. Uh... My, uh, I'm sorry, Mum, I'm going to tell the story. She used to say to me when I was young, she told me, I don't remember it. I used to stand up on a chair and whatever and yell and I was the youngest at the time and she used to say, you don't have to stand up on your chair and yell out to get attention. She's, and now she'll say, oh, man, was I wrong. Like, <laughs> this film is a guy standing on a chair to get attention. His name is P.T. Barnum and he came from the most crippling, horrific... Uh, poverty. He had all these dreams and ideas and he would not take no for an answer and he had a lot of fight in him mm. and he was, yes, the birth of showbiz, definitely the birth of marketing. Uh, I just read a great quote from him, without, without promotion something terrible will happen. Nothing. <laughs> like, <laughs> he, he, could turn, he could turn lemons into lemonade no matter what. He got the worst review I have ever read in my life, which basically started with this show is degrading it is criminal, it is a circus. And you read it and he goes, I like circus. And he literally, that's how we have the name circus today. Like he could literally, and then he reprinted the terrible review in every paper in New York and offered half price tickets to anyone who brought him in because he knew there was no such thing as bad publicity. So it's a musical, it's an original movie musical, which at the time hadn't been done in 23 years uh, when we were greenlit. So we figured it was, it was the perfect story to take a chance on. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a great thrill for me to be able to do this movie musical. Justin and Benj wrote the music. They just got nominated for three Grammy Awards. They won the Tony Award for Dear Evan Hansen. They won the Oscar for the lyrics of La La Land. And when we hired them, the director had to lie that they had won the Tony Award uh, because they, they were literally out of college. And we were, we were going to every single big recording artist out there to record stuff. The studio were like, we know we need big names. And they were like, who's this Justin and Bench? And the director, Michael Gracie, said, oh, they just won a Tony Award. For what? James and the Giant Peach. <laughs> and the Hollywood exec goes, oh, OK, of course. <laughs> There's never been a Broadway production of James and the Giant Peach. Um, and anyway, they're on it. And uh, Michael Gracie, it's his first time director. There's, there's so many great things about it. Zendaya and... Zach from Michelle Williams, Rebecca Ferguson. Uh, sorry, I'm sounding like Barnum giving the pitch, but I'm very, <laughs> it is a great Christmas yeah. all family movie, and I, I love the music and I love what the movie has to say, which is you, it, what makes you different makes you special, which is really what Barnum's show is all about. Yeah, 26th of December, so <laughs> great. Uh, we've got time for a couple more questions, actually. So, uh, lady right there, if we can get a microphone to you, and then. And then a lady there. Let's finish with a couple of ladies. If you'd like to go first, please. Um, hello. You've actually answered three of the questions I had thought of before I came. So what I'm going to ask you is about looking back to the golden age of Hollywood or some of the older actors, older musicals, older films. Is there a film you think you would like to have been in before? In the old days, maybe? To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm -hmm. Would you have played what? Atticus? Uh, <laughs> as an actor, I just... I just think Gregory Peck is amazing. Mm -hmm. I love that character. I love that book and I love that story. Um, I love that he's 
dignity, his ease, uh, his panache, um, and singing in the rain. I would love to have been in that. I mean, it's pure wishful thinking because... I'll redo it. Huh? <laughs> Please? I... Oh, I'm courageous, so but that's cra no. No one should ever try to redo Gene Kelly in my mind. Like honestly, that movie, <laughs> that movie is just perfection. It is. It still holds up. It's satirical. It is funny. Donald O'Connor, make him laugh. Hmm. Moses supposes. I mean, you name it. It, it is just beautiful. The Sid Charisse number. That it probably yeah. That kind of stuff. The couch and good Thank morning. You. Yeah, yeah. Oh. but uh, thankfully musicals are coming back mm. and I'm thrilled that La La Land did so well. I think a lot of people saw La La Land who may not normally have seen it and I think Baz Luhrmann has a lot to do with the musical really coming back in vogue with Moulin Rouge probably 15 years ago because honestly when we, when, this was 2009 when we first approached the studio about doing this, there had not been an original movie musical in 23 years. It was considered just too risky. So um, anyway, it's, it's a great thrill to be in it. Great, thank you for your question. And then our final question, lady here. Yeah, thank no pleasure, you. but it's got to be great. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, it's, um, it's in relation to what Daniel was saying, actually. I've got an 11-year-old son who is uh, performing at the moment. He's been working really, really hard to try and get to the industry. He's now just got into a lead role in a local pantomime, um, which is really great news. Um, he is your, you are his role model, so he'd obviously rather be here than me today. Um, but one of the things he has asked me to ask if I had this opportunity is, what words of advice can you give to him? Any tips to success and including ideas of, I know we know your agent's in here, so I hope you don't mind me asking, but obviously advice in regarding getting an agent for him. How old uh, is he, 11? He's 11 years old. I got my first job when I was 26, so... <laughs> He's miles ahead of me. Tell him that. <laughs> uh, so when my career's in the toilet, tell him to be nice to me, all right? And, but good on him, doing the panto. Do the panto, do the play, do the school play, do the community thing, go for auditions, do classes. If he ever stops loving it, take a break. Yeah. He's too young in my... Don't tell him this. This no, is no, probably no, for you, no. but I'm a parent. That's my point of view and I've worked with a lot of kid actors on set and some of which I can tell I don't, lo don't love it and it, I feel for them. If they're too young not to love it, you should always love it but at that age really shouldn't feel pressure. I, as his parent I would advise you to make it as fun as possible, as joyous, as available. Um, if he wants to go for an agent and do all that and he's enjoying it, Terrific. Uh, I, I'm sorry I don't know really the names of anyone. I really, I mean, there's Luke Coulson here, go for it, but, but uh, find her afterwards. But even, even that, I would just say, just keep going along. Things will naturally happen. And continue to learn, be open to learning. Like, learn to dance, learn to sing. I never thought I'd be in a musical. I thought I was gonna be a Shakespearean actor. And I've had so much joy doing musicals. And, it's been a surprise. So I would keep him on that track of learning, but bottom line, it should be fun. Thank you very much. Great, thank you. Thank you so much to you all being here yes. tonight. Also Can I say thank you as well? Thank I really, really appreciate it on Sunday night, every you coming out, and I saw other people ask, uh, wanted to ask questions, and I'm sorry I didn't get a time, but I do really appreciate everybody coming out to uh, witness my first half-life in film. <laughs> <laughs> the fabulous Hugh Jackman. Oh, sorry, did I wrap it up? No. That was terrible. <laughs> Not at all, it was perfect. Done. <laughs>